Well, good morning. Um, ministered across the river from you for uh, nine years back in uh, the period of 1992 to about 2000. Uh, never had the opportunity to be here except for a classes meeting when I came to Chilliwack a, a number of years ago. So it's a real privilege uh, to uh, meet with you this morning and to open God's word with you. Uh, I was asked uh, if I could uh, contribute to um, a discussion on the road to the cross and I offered some possibilities and they chose that I would speak on the wife of Pontius Pilate. And in order to do that, you need to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, where there's the only reference in scripture to uh, the wife of Pontius Pilate. Now Liz said we're on the way to uh, the cross, to Good Friday. The story that we're reading this morning actually takes place uh, on the day of Good Friday. So we're a little bit out of sequence in terms of, of this because, you know, of course, Palm Sunday is still coming and then Easter Sunday. But just simply to set that situation, Jesus has been arrested uh, and now he is before Pontius Pilate. So Matthew chapter 27, we'll begin to read at verse 11. If you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, it's on page 998. We'll read the verses 11 through 26. It's also on the screen, I believe. And there we go. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. When he had released Barabbas to them, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
This is the word of the Lord. You make decisions all the time, I suppose. You made a decision this morning to get dressed and to come here. Decisions are routine. A little later on in the day, you'll probably think, what should we have for supper? But routine decisions, coming quite easily, pale when we have to make decisions of great impact. Where do we go for vacation? Do we buy this house? Is this the time to sell? Do we move? Do we change jobs? Do we have the surgery that is suggested to us? And you wonder, how do you come to make good decisions? I'm reminded of a young manager who was going to take the place of a very senior, highly successful manager. And he was a little nervous about it. And so he came to that retiring manager and he says, can I pick your brain, please? Yes. He says, I would like you to know or to inform me how I can make good decisions. Well, the manager said to him very bluntly, experience. You need to have experience. Well, how do I gain experience? You respond to bad decisions. You clean up after yourself. You gain wisdom. You gain insight. Pilate was a decision maker. He had been appointed to be governor, and to be governor of Judea at that point meant that he had at least three uh, forms of influence. He had military influence, he had governing influence, and he had financial influence. He governed all of those three things, and basically he was responsible only to the emperor. The emperor at this point was Tiberius, and he had appointed Pilate to be governor of Judea, in 26 AD, and he stayed as governor of Judea until uh, 36 AD. During that time, Pilate made lots and lots of decisions, and he got deeply and deeply into trouble. He hated the Jews, and the Jews hated him. He would come to the Jews, and he would offend them. He wanted to exalt the Romans, and so he brought Roman military standards into the temple, which was deeply offensive to the Jews. He wanted to bless the, the population by providing more water, and so he built an aqueduct to Jerusalem, but he took them a good deal of the money for it from the temple treasury, which was deeply offensive to the Jews. And he wasn't afraid to send his military out with their blades unsheathed and to stab a few people in the back. It was such a, a hateful relationship that the Jewish leadership actually lodged a complaint with Tiberius about Pilate's conduct. But Pilate had authority. And the Jews needed his authority in this moment when they had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Jewish authorities wanted to get rid of Jesus because he was, for them, a troublemaker. 
but they had no power to execute. And so they needed to come to Pilate. And Pilate wasn't stupid. He had some experience in making decisions. And he recognized that they were trying to prosecute Jesus on the basis of envy. Jesus has had great crowds following him. Jesus had, had impressed people with his teaching. They were astonished at his authority. He could heal people. He raised the dead. He fed people. He was a, a person of profound impact. And Pilate knew that the leaders of the Jewish nation were envious of Jesus and they wanted to get rid of him. And so they brought Jesus to Pilate and Pilate was seated on the judgment seat. And while he was there, his wife sends him a message. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. I have suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. You get this idea as Pilate is seated on the judgment seat that this, this woman that was his wife, we'll talk a little bit more about her in a minute, this woman who was his wife really had had to work up her courage to do this. This was to enter into a situation. Can you imagine being in one of our provincial courts or federal courts and then the, the judge is sitting on the bench and suddenly a person comes, oh, uh, your honor, I have a message from your wife. There may be a parallel to uh, that in this event from 9-11. You recognize President George W. Bush, the September 9-11. The person whispering to him is Andy Card, who is his chief of staff. Mr. Bush at this moment was listening to some children in a kindergarten class read to him. This was a sort of a photo op, you know, the president connecting with the ordinary people of the, of the day and of the situation. And Andy Card comes and whispers in his, his ear, a second plane has hit the World Trade Center. Now what is Bush to do? Jump up? Run out? He sits for seven more minutes because he does not want to frighten the children. Andy Card writes about how he struggled whether or not he should go and whisper in the president's ear. You could say that our world changed at that particular moment. This lady sends a message to her husband, have nothing to do with this innocent man. But who is she? Who is she? The only reference in the scriptures in the Bible that we uh, read and love and take seriously is this verse in Matthew chapter 27. We know some other stuff about her from other sources. The Gospel of Nicodemus is an apocryphal book. We don't recognize it as canonical, but he mentions her and he, he provides her name. It's Claudia Procula. Claudia Procula. 
And we wonder, who is she? Well, it is alleged that she is likely the illegitimate granddaughter of Caesar Augustus, who was emperor at the time when Jesus was born. And that she was in a marriage relationship with Pontius Pilate, and that she had done something which was quite unusual for women of governors and other foreign uh, servants of the empire. She had accompanied her husband to his place of service. Now that was not unheard of, but it was very rare. Mostly they were assigned to leave Rome and go to wherever they were assigned and their wives and their families would stay behind. But Claudia accompanied Pilate and historians speculate as to why. It is thought that she had some sympathy to the Jewish faith. It was thought that she liked to understand that faith and that may also explain why she was in Jerusalem at this particular time. Normally, she and Pilate would live in Caesarea, right along the Mediterranean coast, a lot more comfortable, a lot cooler. Herod had built quite a considerable palace there. And that's what normally they would be. But it is the time of Passover, the time of unleavened bread. And, and the, the normal population of Jerusalem would have swollen by this time. Normally, they think the population would be around 50,000 people in Jerusalem on a day-to-day -day basis. But when Passover was there, the, the conservative estimate is it would rise to about a quarter of a million people. It would rise from 50,000 to 250,000. The historian Josephus likes to exaggerate with his numbers. He says that there's about 3 million people there, but that's not likely to have been true. But it may explain why Claudia was in Jerusalem with her husband. It is Passover. She has some sympathy towards the, the whole situation of the Jewish faith. And then later on, some of the church fathers, Eusebius and Origen, Origen in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, both proclaim that uh, Claudia uh, becomes a Christian. And so you see in the picture to, the, to uh, your left and to my right that she is a saint in the Orthodox and the Coptic churches because of her advocacy for Jesus have nothing to do with this innocent man. I have suffered greatly because of him. You think for a moment, how does she know all of this? I need to go back. There we go. Well, Job writes in Job 33 these words, for God does speak now in one way and now in another though no one perceives it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing, to keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. God has spoken to Claudia 
and she has suffered. Now, exactly how she suffers, we don't know. We know how Jesus suffered. You know, it says in the text that Pilate had him flogged and then gave him over to be crucified. To be flogged by the Romans would be to be abused with a whip that would have stones and metal and other things embedded into its straps. Very often, people died because of Roman flogging. Claudia doesn't suffer that way. Claudia's suffering seems to be more internal. The word used for her suffering is the word that we talk about when we talk about the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. The, the word is the same. It's her passion, her internal suffering. What is she dealing with? Is she having anxiety for her husband? She knows already that he's in trouble with the Jews and may be indeed in trouble with the emperor and maybe in a few years' time they'll be called back home and exiled. That's what historians think happens to Pilate and to his wife. It is thought that Tiberius said that he had an option. He could either be executed or commit suicide. It was up to him. And historians believe that Pilate commits suicide in an area of what we now call France. Claudia's suffering. She's anxious for her husband. She's anxious for the principles of Roman justice. You know, Pastor Martin talks about doing justice in a world that is blackened with rage and anger and greed. And the Romans dealt with that as well. And there's a principle of justice, an ancient principle of justice that says, let justice be done though the heavens fall. No matter what the price is, you have to do what is right. Let justice be done though the heavens fall. Claudia's suffering. Her grandfather was the emperor. Her father's related to the emperor. Rome is experiencing difficulty. Pilate has made some bad decisions. The consequences are real. And she has a dream. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. It's interesting that this dream comes right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And the issue is, who is this person Jesus? And Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? It is as you have said, says Jesus. But this is not the only time when this is being dealt with. You know, a few short months ago, we had Christmas. This coming, I was saying in the room with the worship team beforehand, this coming Thursday is the Feast of the Annunciation, the declaration to Mary that she was going to get pregnant, and that's nine months to Christmas, in case you're counting. You know, the whole reality of the Magi. Well, the Magi come to Jerusalem, and who are they looking for? The king of the Jews. 
And what is the response? Well, all Jerusalem is troubled. And what does Herod the king do? He gathers together the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Where is this king of the Jews to be born? In Bethlehem of Ephrata. And Pilate says to these wise guys, to the Magi, when you find him, tell me where you found him so that I too may go and worship him. But we discover that through a dream, through a dream, the wise men are told to go home another way. And Herod erupts with anger. And as a result of that, children in Bethlehem suffer and die. Because he is concerned about his throne. Matthew begins with a reference to the king of the Jews. In Matthew 27, there's a reference, are you the king of the Jews? And those are the only two times that Matthew mentions those things. He brackets every other concern he has with these two realities. And the other concern that Matthew really has is to prove and to show that Jesus is the son of David, the descendant of the great king of Israel. King of the Jews, son of David, king of the Jews. Officials who respond with fear and anger. Officials who respond with fear and anger. And then comes this word via a dream have nothing to do with this innocent man. What are we to make of that? Have nothing to do with this innocent man. In other words, husband of mine, stop! And he doesn't. The message comes to him. He's seated on the judgment seat and he is trying to the best of his ability to figure a way out of this mess. And he thinks, I've got it. I am going to let the crowd decide. I can't decide because if I decide one way and release him, then the Jewish leaders who are already angry with me will get even more angry and they may send another complaint about me to the emperor. And if I decide to convict him, well, I know my wife will be angry with me because she says have nothing to do with, with this innocent man. And I know others will be angry with me. And besides that, I am convinced in my own heart that he's innocent. I'm going to be angry with me. So we'll just let the crowd decide. It's like, you know, taking a poll in modern day politics. We'll just let the polls decide. But is that leadership? That's just an aside. Is that leadership? Leadership is striving to be a humble, faithful, obedient servant. He says, well, here we have two Jesuses. We have Jesus Barabbas, and we know from other gospel things that he is an insurrectionist. All I have to do is say January 6th, and you get an image. He's an insurrectionist. And you have this Jesus, Messiah, the anointed one. Which one shall I release to you? 
But those who are working in the background aren't stupid, and they have seated the crowd, and the crowd now yell out Barabbas, and now suddenly Pilate's whole idea of escape disappears. And then he says, oops, you know, he says, just notice the two pictures. You, you see this Jesus who's in chains, Barabbas who's in chains, but notice the smile on Barabbas' face. I'm free. I'm released. And Jesus just stands there. Now, I know this is an artist's de depiction, but the result of it all is, is that now Pilate has to come to the crowd. What shall I do with this one who is, declares himself to be king of the Jews? And the answer is one word or two words. Crucify him. Crucify him. And that's what Pilate opts to do, but not before he takes a bowl and washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And then we say, no, not so fast. Not so fast. You are responsible, Pilate. You can't escape your responsibility. You had him flogged. You had him handed over to be crucified. What are we to make of all of this? Well, in the words of Claudia, as she speaks to her husband, we are to hear a word of affirmation about the quality of the person Jesus. Have nothing to do with this innocent Man. Other translations will say, have nothing to do with this just man or have nothing to do with this righteous man. I have suffered much because of him. Have nothing to do with this innocent, just, righteous man. And what message comes to us? Well, here is a person who has all of the worthiness that we do not. We were conceived and born in sin, but Jesus was without sin. The Annunciation comes up this week. The angel would say, in response to Mary's questions, how is this to be since I am a virgin? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And what will be conceived in you is by the Holy Spirit without the brokenness of our sinful nature. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes as an innocent person and the Lord has laid then on him the iniquity of us all. In Pilate's decision not to set people or Jesus free Jesus now in his death sets us free the apostle Paul will go on to say in Romans that we are justified by grace through faith think for a moment about what that means that here I am a guilty person and because Jesus the innocent one died in my place God looks at me 
as if, as if I am without sin. As we sang earlier, it is Christ in me. And he notes that that is done in an instant, once and for all. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. You know, sitting there in the pew, you look at, at a church and, and, you know, at a building and, you know, you think about how, how things would function here. And I thought about a wedding taking place here. You know, I've never done a wedding here. I'm sure Pastor Martin has done many. But, you know, weddings are an illustration of what transactional situation happens. A, a husband and wife come together or a bride and groom come together and they exchange vows one thing you cannot do in a marriage, or in a wedding thing, you cannot avoid the vow. I've often said to marriage couples, I can have you married in seven minutes for 100 bucks. That's all it takes. Next time you spend $30,000 on a wedding, just remember, seven minutes, $100. Maybe $150 now because, you know, the license fees go up. But you need a license, you need an officiant, you need a couple of witnesses, and you need people who will say to each other, I promise to take you to hold you forever. There has to be a strong I do. Can you imagine you say to a bride who says to her husband, you know, you know will you take me? I think so. No, 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 that's not good enough. I do. It's a decision. And once you wear this ring, it's a testimony to the fact that your life changed in an instant. You're no longer single. You're now married. That's all it takes. Then you've got to live as if you're married. And that changes everything. It changes how you conduct yourself. It changes how you approach uh, a home. It's not just my home. It's our home. It changes everything. And so it is with salvation. In an instant, in Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of the innocent, I have been set free. Now I need to live in that freedom. We call that the doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of living out that freedom from one moment to another. Of learning to surrender all. And so we know what Pilate did in the face of a decision. But now we need to face Jesus who is the king at the beginning of the journey and at the end of the journey. Jesus who is the king. And he speaks to us. And he says, how do you respond to me? What decision about me will you make now? I think you have three choices. You could either believe that Jesus is a liar, someone who is just fooling you and has besmirched history for the last 2,000 years. You can believe he's a lunatic, that he's just crazy and off his rocker and you ought to ignore him. Or you can accept him as Lord. And that he has the right to say to you, walk in my way. 
All of us need to make decisions. The decision that is before us today is how do you respond to this Jesus? Is he indeed the innocent one who died in your place? Is your Savior and is your Lord? If he is, then when you leave this place, call to mind the words that the cadets will say when you have a cadet Sunday. What is, what is his command? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what is my commandment? That you love God above all, that you love your neighbor as yourself. But now it's our decision. I suspect Many of you will join with me and say, yeah, I've made bad decisions in the past. That's true. Very bad decisions in the past. Lay them before the cross. Because the innocent one died there. And he rose again three days later. And he says to all of us, you are mine. My steadfast love will not fail. And you can have peace going forward. And when you make another bad decision, lay it before the cross. And then learn to make better decisions as you go forward. Because the innocent one paid the price. And we are free. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the way of the cross. For drawing us closer and closer to you all of the time. Thank you for the courage of Claudia Procula who would go to her husband as he sat on the bench and say, have nothing to do with this innocent man. Thank you for the affirmation of his innocence. Thank you for the truth and the reality that he is a worthy sacrifice and that because of him, our lives are changed forever. Thank you that we are justified by grace through faith and that we are being changed, sanctified from one degree of glory to the next. Lord God, we pray that as we leave this place that we may make decisions that affirm you always. So hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.